1: Are you talking about you, insane Hollywood? ass So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch.
0: Forty five dollars up front for three months, plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Birdman, The Overnighters, Still Alice, The Theory of Everything, St. Vincent, and more. The Bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca.
3: creative control with
2: be on Saturday I remarked to my wife that it was amazing that I hadn't gotten sick uh, yet this winter and then I got sick the next day so don't talk out loud about the thing you don't want to happen to you because it'll happen to you and you'll feel miserable my throat's all screwed up And I don't feel that good So I'm just going to make this brief And tell you that I'm very thrilled To present an interview I conducted recently Prior to the illness With Kids in the Hall Co-founder and star Bruce McCullough He has just published a new book It's called Let's Start a Riot It's wonderful And parts of that book have been adapted Into a new TV series That is premiering uh, this week uh, On January 21st as a matter of fact And it's called Young Drunk Punk And it was just, as I say, I'm a Kids in the Hall were like everything to me I, They meant the world to me as a, as a young man And I still, when I have the opportunity I revisit what they got up to And uh, In fact, someone pointed this out On Twitter, it seems that Saturday Night Live Over the weekend may have ripped off One of the Kids in the Hall sketches uh, About a guy who says he can't speak English To avoid An awkward situation uh, Dave Foley Did the, er, did this bit and With Scott Thompson and I think Siren Live did the same thing. I watched it. Their bet's kind of similar. Pretty similar. Anyway, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the SNL. Kids and All is very relevant. And Bruce McCullough is a very busy man and a very kind man. And, and you'll hear that here. This is myself and Bruce McCullough having a conversation about a young drunk punk. And let's start a riot.
4: CFRU 93.3 FM is 35 years old and they're celebrating with a series of parties and party-like events designed for people who know how to party. On January 22nd, Brian Borchard and Graham Walsh of Holy Fuck are doing DJ sets in between rounds of Golden Throats karaoke at the Brash Taps at the University of Guelph. This is free and accessible and all are welcome. On January 23rd, we're live broadcasting a Noon Hour concert by the Soul Jazz Orchestra at the University Center. On January 26th, we'll be doing a live broadcast from the Bull Ring between 2 and 5 p.m. featuring some CFRU alumni. On January 28th, Grand Analog perform at a Nooner in the University Center and we're broadcasting that. And January 30th, February 27th, March 27th, and April 17th, CFRU is presenting a series of events at Silence in Downtown Guelph. Now, for more information and to tune into some of this stuff, please visit CFRU.ca. And remember, it's never too late to learn to party.
2: The 2015 edition of Hillside Inside takes place February 6th to 8th in various venues in downtown Guelph. Now, while Saturday's show with the new pornographers and operators and Sunday's show featuring Stars and Hey Rosetta are both sold out, you can still get tickets for other stuff like Friday's Oliver Matipuzzi and the Black Spirits River Run Center show with Alex Cuba, or... The Kid Koala Bad, Bad Bad Not Good Bizarre Show At Mitchell Hall There are also still tickets left For the Owen Pallett Jennifer Castle Show At St. George's Church Sanctuary Saturday afternoon And there's a whole bunch of other stuff happening In stores and restaurants and cafes uh, Over the weekend So head over to hillsidefestival.ca For updates and more info Bruce McCullough is a tremendously influential and iconic comedic writer, performer, and director from Alberta, who currently lives in the Hollywood Hills. He has written for Saturday Night Live, directed films like Stealing Harvard and Superstar, and released two excellent comedy records, Shame-Based Man and Drunk Baby Project. McCullough is best known as a member of the beloved and edgy troupe Kids in the Hall, who produced one of the greatest sketch comedy shows ever. Some of his adventures with the kids have been documented in his excellent new memoir Let's Start a Riot, which is out now via HarperCollins and has has been partially adapted for a new TV series called Young Drunk Punk, which premieres Wednesday, January 21st on City TV. Here to discuss some of these things further is the great Bruce McCullough. Hello Bruce, how are you?
3: Wow, you you pumped me up so much. I'm I'm sort of feeling some sort of weird shame. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this happens from time to time. People are a little taken aback by my flowery, flowery intros, but I meant every word. Well, thank you so much. Now, where are you, Bruce?
3: I'm in the editing room in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.
2: Oh, you're work, yeah, you working on your show?
3: Yeah, we're on episode six or seven and uh, getting ready uh, for the premiere next week.
2: Excellent. You must be excited.
3: I'm, I, I am. I'm uh you know, when you make something, you're always in your world and your landscape of making stuff. But then when you get ready to release it to the world, it becomes a, a, a trickier time in your brain. Y-
2: yes, and you have much experience with this idea of holding, ho- hoarding something, <laughs> almost. <laughs> yeah, creating something and holding on to it and sharing it with your immediate circle. And then it goes, and you've got to let it go, I guess.
3: Yeah, and also it's so interesting to have an idea in your brain that you 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 pitch, explain, write, and then all of a sudden there's a person doing it who's wearing a pair of shoes, and then you add music to it, and it, it's actually real. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that, that's, of course, the exciting part.
2: Now, in Let's Start a Riot, you mentioned that writing a book was kind of a secret, unlikely desire you held as a creative person and a writer. Uh, what do you suppose finally compelled you to write this book?
3: Um, I don't know. I think I got a little tired of a kind of machinery in Hollywood that I'd fallen into a little bit, which was, oh, uh, maybe I'll do a show about a chef in a kitchen. Okay, that sounds funny, (laughs) Uh, or something. I think something about the work I'd been doing turned me back to the impulse of why I'd started doing what I did, which is uh, writing crazy little things that the few people or many people who like me can connect to. And I think turning back to myself in this, you know, in the book, it was my entire life, um, and in this TV show, it's a sliver of it, but has been kind of exciting for me.
2: So you weren't necessarily in a rut yourself, but you were just kind of surveying the landscape and thinking, I could contribute something a little more substantial than what I'm seeing around me.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, every... You know, we always think whatever we do, you know, as writers, we always convince ourselves whatever we're working on is is amazing. Um, and then sometimes you know, maybe it isn't as connected to yourself as you think it is. Mm -hmm. And only in retrospect, you look back and go, wow, that, that rom-com I wrote was, it was funny, but so what? Or whatever. Um, so with this, this work, it's like pretty, uh, exciting to kind of go through the, uh, archaeology of my, of my life.
2: <laughs> now, we live in a, an age of, I think, particular self-importance. It may have already always been this way, but it seems heightened these days with the various forums that people have. D- did you have a particular vision for what you did and didn't want to convey about yourself and your life in writing a memoir?
3: No, I think, you know, I think once you start to open the door, you have to, you know, as an artist... You know you're the clay, and you're you're your own commodity, and it's like, oh, okay, yes, that embarrassing thing I did was really funny. Oh, that other embarrassing thing was even funnier. So of course you don't want to um, hurt the ones around you, um, but of course in my book. Um, you know, I'm kind of the biggest asshole of of the gang, <laughs> and um, but no, once once you once you open the door, you got to go into the room. If you know what I mean.
2: Well, you mentioned you sort of allude to tact there, and I th- I feel like there's a particularly artful structure to the tone and style of your book. The stories are are clear, but I found some aspects and characters to feel almost deliberately vague. Is that what you're referring to? Is that purposeful?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're you know uh readers are are pretty astute now so they know that you can kind of go from the surreal to the real qu- rather quickly i mean obviously sedaris is the mm-hmm. the master of that you know i think um there was something about calling my wife my pretty wife and you know only using her name in the acknowledgments at the end that felt right for me yeah. um so i think it's stuff like that i think
2: you just you you view, it was an artistic device uh, to kind of keep, it in the in the context of writing a personal memoir, you did want to keep a bit of distance between yourself and the reader?
3: Well, not really. I just, uh, it didn't matter what my wife's name was. I think in the writing about my marriage, it feels like some of the people have responded to that's their favorite stuff because um, it's it's gooey and imperfect, and we talk about couples therapy and things like that. Yeah. So I'm not afraid um, to, you know, take the mask off. So I want to get closer to the reader, but I didn't, you know knowing the, knowing the uh um more details about my my family is probably not important cuz it's not emotional or it's not funny or
4: whatever you
2: know yeah how well did it go over with your with your wife that she was no she's known as pretty wife like a pretty wife that's amazing like that's a nice compliment over and over again i kept th- picturing this pretty <clears throat> wife of yours she must be very flattered
3: well she is and of course you know my pretty wife it's kind of Slightly derogatory and it's mostly <laughs> complimentary, so you know w- with with the sugar is the salt um, and of course, you know this isn't a literal memoir, not every detail in my book you know when I do it on stage show every night i yeah I, I tell a terrible story of our couple's uh, w- uh, sex weekend, most of it is true, but she has to sit through you know the twenty percent of it that's exaggerated right, but she you know she knows that it's par, par for the course you know she she uh she went to bed with a uh, artist. Um, <laughs> she coupled up with me, so it's her fault.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, it is It is completely her fault. I think we can all agree upon that. Now, did you ever actually have a desire, or were you ever urged by external forces to write something a bit more sensationalistic, a bit more direct?
3: No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, one of the great things when I wrote the book, um, you know, uh, HarperCollins, we talked about you know, I talked to other publishers and I think they really wanted a kid in the hall memoir in a sense. And what Harper Collins had responded to was my stage show, which was really personal stories about me where the kids in the hall were in the background. Mm -hmm. So I think if, if there was any pressure when I was writing my book, it was, you know, Oh, we should have more like crazy stories about the kids in the hall going to jail in Atlanta. And that didn't feel like the emotional core of the book I was writing. So, um, i didn't do that
2: yeah that's that's fair where where were you actually raised?
3: I was raised in well uh born in Edmonton yeah went to Winnipeg when my parents uh divorce broke or parents' marriage broke up um i guess people's divorce don't break don't break up
2: um <laughs> things are going really thinking, badly if your divo- if your divorce <laughs> breaks up that's breaks really up. bad yeah, yeah that's a yeah. bad yeah yeah. Yeah, Or maybe um, it's then, great. I don't know. Any, anyway. well, it could be great. Who, who, who's to say? Who's to judge?
3: <laughs> um, and then I was in Calgary and Edmonton back and forth for my sort of formative um, years up until I left there uh, to do comedy in Toronto.
2: Right. Now, I'm from Ontario, but my wife is from Edmonton, so I spent, uh, uh, you know, once or twice a year we, we go to Edmonton, and I, I quite enjoy it now as a city. Uh, uh, did you in retrospect, I mean, I, I feel like you had, you describe it as a crappy family life, but do you, when you go to Edmonton or Calgary now, do you have a fondness for it? Does it feel home in any, like like, like home in any way?
3: Oh, y- yes, but it's a different home. You know, I've, I've m- my best friends in the world are uh, connected through One Yellow Rabbit there in Calgary. So I've been back there doing something every year for... You Know since I left, essentially, I always go back to Calgary and do a show or see their shows or whatever. Yeah, um, I think you know, when I did this series, I'm working on it's the first time I've been back because we actually shoot it in the old townhouse community that I grew up in. So I think it's the first time I've been there for many, many years. So it was going back in a different way. So there's a couple different Calgary's there's the Calgary that I came from, and then now there's one where. know, there's as many hipsters per square inch as any other, you know, great city in North America.
2: They've got that Great Sled Island Arts Festival. Have you been to that? Uh,
3: Yeah. I mean, they have, you know, that wasn't wasn't the case (laughs) when I was growing up, you know. So uh, had it been, I may not have had to uh, leave to go to uh, Toronto, but uh, I certainly thought it was my job when i was growing up
2: yeah i just i the last time i was in calgary was for sled island and i was like i don't know what people are complaining about this seems pretty cool
3: oh no it's you know and edmonton too and it's you know um i was up in uh yellow a few months ago and it's like they have more art there than anywhere yeah i've ever been per square inch and <laughs> it's like no you know there's a lot of great stuff going on in canada i don't think the Canada that I portrayed as of uh, 1975 or 80 is is similar to what's happening now.
2: You were impacted early by both comedy and music, and while you're you've incorporated both in your work, I think it's fair to say that you are known as a comedic performer. Um, can you talk a little bit about when that realization struck you that you had <clears> to <throat> sort of choose one path or the other?
3: Well, there was never an option to pursue music. I think. You know, I was, I was blessed with friends who were slightly older than me that sort of tootled me in, no, no, listen to T-Rex, don't listen to, you know, um, Hawkwind or whatever. And, but they were also accomplished guitarists and things, you know, at the age of 15 when I was 13. And I thought, oh, it's too late for me. I can't be a musician. Mm. Um, and I just, I just never thought maybe I was just instinctively smart enough. To think that that wasn't what I was special at, mm. and so I think, you know, I I, I walked the streets of Calgary, um, you know, and s- sat in the bars of Calgary <laughs> as a young man, n- knowing that I was special and there was something special about me. I never thought my way out was going to be rock music, and when I finally um, encountered comedy, it was just like, you know, uh, felt like a gay man coming out of the closet, <laughs> like I'd found my thing. That's a, um, hmm.
2: And you also pursued, I mean, you had some interest in athletics as well, right?
3: Yeah, no, I was a, you know, a marathon runner. And as a young man, I was a football player and a competitive weightlifter. Um, but I think that was as much, you know, trying to place my teenage rage in a uh, in an avenue that wasn't just uh, getting drunk and getting into fights, you know. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, running is, I, I still run five times a week. Um, you may not know to look at me, um, <laughs> but one of the oldest relationships I have in my life is is with running. You know, which I think I think comedy saved me. I also think athletics uh, and running kind of saved me.
2: It does seem like you're self aware enough to know that you have something within you that you need to channel or exercise on occasion. Uh, no, I, when I I know we were just talking about exercising, I meant to say right. X or size.
3: I think so. I mean, you know, also my you know, all our paths in life are to understand ourselves. And I think sometimes when someone um, like me may have some interesting uh, cult, character awareness, like I can, I can do a portrait of a, of a person who hates their bank job and nail that, mm-hmm. that you think that that um, sort of vision should extend to themselves, but it often doesn't. So I think I, it really did take me into my 40s to truly understand myself, yeah, Um, and that's kind of, I think even now in my 50s, how I can kind of go back um, in a non-sentimental way with this TV series, discuss my young life, or with the book, discuss my entire life.
2: Yeah. I I am intrigued by your self-identification and allusion to being a punk, because it's a designation that I also share. What is it about punk that spoke or continues to speak to you?
3: Well, and of course, you know, I I use the word punk in both the literal and the figurative. Mm
1: -hmm. You know,
3: for me, the music that I listened to at, you know, from age 14 on was, you know, my kind of companion in life. And it's my way I judged myself and those around me. Um, But I think, you know, it helped me sort of rocket um, out of, uh, out of sort of a rage I had, and and get me into comedy and in, into Toronto, but I also think that that central question which I've always had, um, which is like why is why are things the way they are? They're kind of weird. They don't have to be the way they are. Yeah. Which is you know basically the stance of the outsider. Um, you know what I what I it's like there was a tipping point in my 40s where I realized that. You know, we're all outsiders, which is kind of one of the themes of my book. And so I'm not alone. And, you know, the people who connect with whatever my weird brain is and the few people that like me, um, they're my friends. Because yeah. um, there's, there's a lot of us and we're all lost and we all don't know what we're doing. And ever so often we do. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that's part of the punk sensibility in kind of a more humanistic way.
2: Yeah, it's not something I recognized at the time in the, in the 90s, but listening to the music I listened to, following your...
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,
2: Seeing your solo uh, one-man show with, well, I guess it was with Brian Connolly, and was Bob Wiseman involved as well?
3: Uh, Bob Wiseman was involved. Uh, I played with him a few times. He produced my first record and did some stuff with me, but I, the stage shows have all been with Brian
2: Connolly. Yeah, that's right, and I saw it in a in a theater in Toronto, and I, I just remember, like as I say, in retrospect, there were a few things as punk rock as what you were up to at that time with the kids in the hall and on your own. Like, there was nothing more challenging and questioning, I think, than what you were doing. I mean, I'm not saying nothing in the whole wide world, but it just didn't occur to me that that's probably why you guys resonated with me. Um, That questioning of authority and and sort of just generally questioning things, I think that's a central tenet of punk.
3: Yeah, and I mean, it it, it certainly, you know, when I go to write something, when the kids in the hall go to write something, we don't go, okay, how how do we F up society and how do we make fun of suburbia or whatever? We just write something that's funny. Yeah. And or I write something that's funny and it's so important to me, all those weird things, you know, whatever happens at a terrible job or whatever, day, jo- day jobs kill, that it'll come out. Yeah. So I think there's something from, you know, certainly from me, I, I think I'm the one who kind of brought the music into the troupe and the rest of them were more obsessed with classic comedy yeah. that, you know, helped, helped it sort of just rock.
2: Well, among the people you acknowledge in the book are Brian Connolly and Reed Diamond, uh, the latter of you referred to as your first mentor. Uh, Bruce, I'm a tremendous fan of Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, so much so that I actively play in a Shadowy Men tribute band. And oh, What are you called? Well, Don Pyle, I started a Facebook thread about what we should call ourselves, and a couple of interesting suggestions were made, but Don chimed in and suggested that we should be called from... Uh, that's all he wrote, From A, because people always got the name of the band wrong. So we were, for a few shows there, we were called from a, Shad- from, from a Shadowy Planet, dot, dot, dot. I'm now thinking we're just called From A. I don't know why. It's just a little nod to Don, I think. Right. Anyway, it's fun. It's really challenging. I play drums in it, and Don is a, I, I think he's an underappreciated uh, under aspect of that band. Uh, he's a great drummer.
3: Oh my god, and he, you know, he is, as Reed was one of my mentors, we all, we all moved out to Toronto kind of on the back of Don Pyle. He was the guy who had a place, we didn't realize that, I think it was in Mississauga, we thought he was in downtown Toronto, and he, (laughs) he helped us, he helped set us up and said, no, you get a, you get a crappy apartment here for $40 and you, here's a sandwich because you haven't eaten and go see this band tonight and say my name and you'll get in. So he's the one who kind of fast tracked um all our musical experiences once we started making trips up to Toronto.
2: Wow, okay. I was gonna I mean that was my qu- my question was gonna be explain the impact of this band and these people on your life. That's th- these are this this is one of your first connections to uh Toronto. I mean I'll albeit Don Don was from Calgary and, and came out here and so you kinda it's it's almost like a like a it's classic immigrant story. <laughs> like like well, <my>, <laughs> you, you well, kinda of latched on to someone from your homeland.
3: Well, it's fascinating. You know, I mean, I had a, Don had bought me a ticket to see The Damned. I think it was The Edge, many, many. It's like 1979, or, you know, it's well before I moved out with the, in, when I was in comedy. And I remember having that in the Bolton Board forever, and it cost like 250, which is a lot of money yeah. then. Maybe it's a lot of money now. Um, and it was sort of a beacon, like, get to Toronto, get to Toronto. So, you know, Reed, Don, and Brian, who were, you know, two and three years my senior, they were these rock daddies who came out to this weird place that I all, always wanted to be, and in a way, you know, everything that happens is a is a beautiful accident. Um, I I don't know if there would be a kids in the hall if there hadn't been those guys because huh. they coalesced my feeling. I mean, I wanted to move to Toronto for the music, but it became very convenient that I should come to Toronto for uh, comedy, and I muscled you know, uh, the little animal that I am, are, uh, my troop, I said, we are moving to Toronto. We have to move to Toronto immediately. And they all didn't, you know, were grumbly a bit. No, let's stay here. And, <laughs> and I think it really is the lineage of shadowy men that sort of made me muscle them to come in the way they did.
2: Wow. I mean, it's. I know, obviously, we all know there's a connection uh, between the two entities, but I didn't realize how impactful they were. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've reached a point in life that I'm kind of already grappling g- grappling with as a father of a of a toddler and a, now a seven-week-old, which is that uh, not simply that I'm old, there's actually a possibility that I might be a little wise, that people in my field coming up might actually be looking to me for advice or guidance. Do you see Let's Start a Ride as being instructive?
3: Well, <clears throat> I think when someone goes, here's the weird mistakes I made in my life, I mean, it's always instructive. You know, I don't think uh, it's more cautionary tale, I think, than true wisdom. Mm. Um, I think I have a little true wisdom, (laughs) mostly because I banged my head against the wall till it bled. But, you know, I like the idea, you know, I never had, you know, probably with the exception of the people we've already talked about, uh, I generally didn't have anyone else growing up or even in my young manhood you know, even into my 30s, that told me, no, you can't yell at Lauren Michaels in a crowded control room. <laughs> um, or, you know, even at a younger age, no, you can't quit your job uh, with one minute notice. Right. Um, and I like the idea that, you know, I, that I can talk to young comedy people or that I certainly can kind of have some influence on what it means to be a good person or a real person or whatever it is with my children, because yeah. uh, none of us never had none of that <laughs> from anybody we knew. And I certainly feel like I am um, from certainly a troop, uh, being the kids, kiss, uh, and a group of people, mostly men, who raise themselves.
2: Well, you you mentioned in the book this interesting moment where you explain to your family that you've been, you know, there's an agreement for you to write a book, and your daughter, as depicted in the book anyway, says, well, why? Why would anyone want you to write a book? How humbling has it been for you as a creative public person to have children? Because for me, I mean, sorry, I'm certainly not on, I'm not a particularly public person, but it is, I find it very leveling. Like, it sort of puts everything in perspective.
3: Yes, but I'm also not Ben Affleck. I'm a guy with a tiny little career. I have a tiny little flame that I, that I fan, and sometimes I forget to fan. And, um, so to them, I'm mostly a guy who's been in my pajamas doing whatever, God <laughs> knows what, I do all day. And I think only as I, they came to Calgary as I was uh, filming uh, Young Drunk Punk And they got to come to set and watch daddy um, perform and be be a director that they realized I had an actual job. So the humbling part has been, you know, I've been in a cocoon with my family. I've kept, you know, ever so often someone will come up to me in a restaurant and say they're a fan. And when they were five, that was weird. But I think it's so infrequent. Um, I know I'm answering kind of a different question but no i'm there's no humbling to be done cuz i'm already humble
2: i see i, I see that, i've that's... already
3: had my i've already had my ass kicked Thank in whatever you. way i've had my ass kicked you know through my 30s and 40s that you know i'm not a guy who's on top of the world singing a happy tune and you know somebody's taking me down a notch
2: no but surely you've probably been with your family and some stranger says oh my god it's you and and your pro- your kids probably look at you like who what the hell like where who are you does that does that happen
3: Oh, without question. Yeah. And, you know, it took time to explain to them that Daddy does some stuff that they, some of it they can watch and some of it they can't watch.
2: Right. <laughs> uh,
3: um, and it, it was fun because when we did the last Kids in the Hall tour, we did a, a weird little opening that I wrote about a, a, all all five of us are in wedding dresses. Oh. Sort of a humanistic piece. And they were allowed to come and watch Daddy be in a wedding dress with his friends and dry ice plays and people scream. And it was... And my daughter asked me questions about that for weeks and months, like why we were wearing wedding dresses, but we weren't women and why people were screaming and who wrote the words. So it's it's actually I've kind of hidden the fact, you know, that uh, that daddy went off to war and did a show. And then now they're starting to know uh, what uh, what I do.
2: It's excellent, though, isn't it? Isn't it fun to make that reveal to your kids? I think it kind
3: of is. It is like, you know, I am actually good at something else <laughs> <laughs> other than just, you know, getting you milk and stuff.
2: Yeah, you're not just Apple Boy. You can do other yeah. things. Yeah. I saw that Mark McKinney blurbed this book, and, and you tell stories about the other kids, uh, most poignantly, I think, Scott Thompson. Have you heard from everyone in the troop, uh, in the kids in the hall, about their impressions of your book? Have, have they gotten a hold of you about it?
3: Um, I, well, Scott made a joke that it seemed really like uh, it should be longer. Hmm. Um, and, of course, we made jokes about him going through it looking for his name. No, <laughs> Mark was the one who, and Mark's always been kind of a fan of my writing, yeah. um, who really was unbelievably effusive, which is not really the kid, kid in the home norm about how, how much you like the book, and I don't know if Dave will read it. Kevin is ferocious to get a copy, meaning I have to send him one, hmm. um, and I will talk to Scott next week because I'm going to see him, and we'll see if he's read it or not.
2: Now, are the, ki- are the kids on good terms these days?
3: Yes, and we're, in fact, hoping to do some more shows uh, in the uh, late spring, maybe May. Oh. So, um, so set your VCRs. Oh, no, that's not how live shows
2: work. <laughs> Whereabouts do you think those might occur?
3: Um, probably uh, the great and lesser cities of North America.
2: <laughs> in Canada and the United States? Yes, Okay, absolutely. that's great. I'm glad that's happening. Now, as it relates yeah. to the book... What's your TV show Young Drunk Punk about per se? We haven't even talked about this yet and we're running out of time.
3: Um well it's it's the sliver from my book which is or based on the emotionally on the sliver of my book which is you know what it's like to be uh 18 years old and lost. So it's set in Calgary in 1980 um and it sort of circles around two kind of uh, Ian and Shinky who are two guys who have a lot of questions around the world. About how how effed up society is, and with not a real plan to fix it, and it's about them finding themselves and kind of their families.
2: Okay, and and this is a, this as you say, these are this is drawn from slivers of the book.
3: Yeah, well, yes, but it's not. Yeah, so it's more like things I remember, but it's it's bigger in a sense, obviously, because it's thirteen episodes and there's lots of stories and um, things that maybe happened to me or maybe that I could have happened to me. Um, and it's you know, as I said before it's it's set in the old townhouse community in which I grew up, so um and i play I play the the dad to the misunderstood teenager um, who wants to help him find himself, but of course is probably a bit more lost myself
2: so are you playing the dad to the fictional teenage version of yourself
3: well, it's not literally a teenage version of myself I mean he's not who I was he's just a different guy, mm-hmm. in fact, you know both of the main characters Ian and Shinky are kind of like k- comedic you know hallucinations of you know the gang I knew no one specific but just you know the things that I felt in some way so um, but yes I do play the dad to uh, a guy who who feels a, a lot like I did when I was young
2: and you had a somewhat I don't know if it's somewhat is understating this, but you had something of a problematic relationship with your father. Are you drawing from that relationship to play the dead?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I didn't actually really have a problematic relationship with my dad. He was a boozer, you know, which which brings trouble into anything. Yeah. But you know, he he was actually a very kind man who tried very hard to understand me. Um, but you know, he was he didn't he didn't have a lot to give me. Okay. So. I think there's there's something in, in that that I, you know, and I bring, you know, to everything I play or everything I write, it's always a person who's a little bit lost, and I certainly think that's uh, the guy I play, Lloyd.
2: Now, I've already heard you mention this. You've, one of the characters is named Ian McKay, but this is in no relation to Ian McKay of Fugazi or Minor Threat. It's just a coincidence.
3: It is a coincidence, yeah. And there is also, isn't Ian McKay, um, oh, in what other band...
2: Um, oh yeah, that's right. There's an Ian. Simple Mind. That's right. So there's yeah.
3: just, you know, and there's just it was a, it was a name of a bunch of people throughout my life, you know. Um, it's a Scottish name. I'm mm. Scottish. Okay. McCullough My dad worked at Campbell, so it just felt like the right
2: name. Okay. Just wondering. I'm a big uh, Fugazi minor threat. I'm a fan of Ian MacKay's work. So when I right. again, it's interesting. Punk. You got you. You got the Ian McKay Me and Ian McKay You know, I'm just uh, maybe we're connecting dots that aren't there. Right. Yeah. Are there any other plans uh, for yourself that you want to share? It seems like you're very busy working on this TV show. You got Kids in the Hall plans coming up. Anything else?
3: No. I think this is mostly it. You know, I'm. uh, You know, it's really been nice. I haven't done a performed in a television series since Kids in the Hall, so it's been really kind of nice to do that. So, you know, it's when you're young, you don't realize how amazing it is to get a show on the air. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if we only do thirteen, that's fine. But you know, it'd be great to do more of this one. I'm putting all my my energy toward this show.
2: Has it was it interesting for you to be on you were on Arrested Development uh for mm. I, guess, I guess it was season 4. Was it interesting for you and you've had a few roles like this where you just play a person. Um you know, it's not your thing. Is that weird for you? To not have that it's control? Okay. Yeah.
3: Like it's okay.
2: Hmm.
3: Um you know, I've never I never auditioned as an actor. You know, I, I it's not something I I was ever interested in. Yeah. You know, I mean, the kids in the hall are my muse or, you know, or my mistresses. Yeah, I feel I feel myself. I can perform with them. Um, so I'm not like Mr. I can go out and kill it in a thousand situations. Right. So I don't love to be on set the way Scott Thompson or something does. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do those things or workaholics or whatever I've done. It's like, yeah, that was, that was kind
2: of fun. Yeah.
3: Um, but this, now because it's my home again, these guys, it's been really fun to just be doing it day after day,
2: you yeah. know? Nice. Well, once again, Bruce McCullough's new memoir, Let's Start a Riot, is out now via HarperCollins and his new series, Young Drunk Punk, premieres Wednesday, January 21st on City TV here in Canada. Is there a is there like an American home for this show?
3: Um, no, we'll endeavor to... Uh, we'll, we'll find one, but there isn't yet.
2: Okay. Well, for more information, please visit brucio.com. That's B-R-U-C-I-O dot com. Uh, Bruce, before we leave... We've we've covered music a little bit and and you know I know you've made some records is there a song or something we could play by yourself or shadowy man or something right now just to 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 leave
3: Yeah I mean it's something that I put in uh the first episode uh of the of the show which just jumped out at me because it I was listening to it in the editing room yesterday and it just it makes me feel the way I did when I was 18 years old which is um Tired of waking up tired by the diodes.
2: Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a cool. That's a great song. Well, let's roll. Hopefully, we have permission to play this. But that no one's gonna. They're not gonna care, are they?
3: No. No. They're gonna love it.
2: <laughs> this is tired of waking up tired by the diodes. Uh, Bruce McCullough. As I hope you could tell, I'm a tremendous fan of your work, and this was a great, great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this chat, and I wish you the best of luck with everything.
3: I have, and I totally appreciate it. And hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Yeah.